let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. This is the 17th Sunday of Pentecost. This is a season of witness where we are called to go into all the world and share with everyone the gospel message about Jesus Christ, that they can be saved from their sins and have eternal life through Jesus. There is an end coming to this time of witness. There is an end coming to the time that we will have to work for Jesus and to do his will here on earth. And so as we're following the book of Acts, we are looking at the mission that Jesus has given his disciples to carry out. We are seeing how the Holy Spirit is moving the people of God to go out. Churches are being established. Those churches are taking responsibility for the mission. And the gospel is being spread. We saw last week how the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul and his team to leave their plans for expansion in Asia and to travel over to Europe, to northern Greece, and begin ministry there. We're going to pick up that story today and see how the Lord is carrying out through his people the mission of the gospel being taken to everyone and what that means for you and for me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming before you. We thank you for the opportunity today to open your word and to hear what you have to say to us. We thank you for the freedom to do so, which many people do not have. And we pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation today. May the Holy Spirit enlighten the eyes of our hearts. May the Holy Spirit give us a yearning to see and to know what you want to say to us today and a wholehearted desire to walk in your ways. And we pray, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the nearness of the return of Jesus and that we as your people will live looking towards and living towards the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 17 and also to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to be then turning to the letters to the church at Thessalonica. And we've entitled our study today, Real Simple Discipleship. And a way that people text using periods to emphasize, we've done so with our title today, real period, simple period, discipleship period. Acts chapter 17. Last week we saw Paul and his team there in Philippi and all that happened to them as they proclaimed the gospel and established the first church. The Apostle Paul would write later on, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Illyricum was modern-day Yugoslavia. And Paul, on his third missionary journey, would travel a different route going through Achaia and Macedonia to fully proclaim the gospel throughout the provinces of Greece. But this was the Apostle Paul's statement. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. At Philippi, Paul and Silas had been beaten and thrown in prison. 
God had responded to their worship by sending an earthquake. And as a result of that earthquake, they had been set free. The gospel had been proclaimed to the jailer. He and his family had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they had been baptized. Now, the next morning, the magistrates who had ordered Paul and Silas to be beaten and incarcerated sent word that they were to be released. Now, the Apostle Paul, as well as Silas, they were both Roman citizens, and what had happened to them was, as we would say, unconstitutional. They had been thrown into prison without a trial. They had been beaten without a trial. And the Apostle Paul was holding on to his rights as a Roman citizen, and he sent back word through the officers who came to release them, we are not going anywhere unless the magistrates come and apologize to us for throwing us in prison. Well, the magistrates understood their grave error, and they came to appease Paul and Silas so that they didn't press charges against the magistrates. And they escorted them out, and they asked them if they would leave the city. In other words, they didn't want this thing to go any further. They didn't want it to make any more news. They themselves did not want to get into greater trouble. The Apostle Paul and his team complied, but first they went back to Lydia's house. All churches met in someone's home. Unlike us, they were not known by a church building. In fact, the way that we are meeting together might be more closely associated to them than when we meet in a church building, in our homes, meeting together. They went back and they encouraged and strengthened the disciples there who had come to know Jesus Christ at Philippi. And then the entire team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, left Philippi. They traveled west on the Via Ignatia. The next two cities were Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they were roughly 30, 35 miles apart. And then they came to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a significant city. The Via Ignatia that we looked at last week that went from the west coast of Greece, connecting Greece to Rome, and traveled all the way across to Byzantium or Constantinople and what is known today as Istanbul, was the main street that ran through Thessalonica. It was a primary seaport, a primary place for commerce, business, culture. It was the capital of the second district of Macedonia, and it was the seat of the Roman provincial government over the province of Macedonia. While he was there, the Apostle Paul engaged in bivocational ministry. In other words, he worked to make a living and support himself and the team. And then on the Sabbath, he would go into the Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Jesus brought the gospel, first of all, to the Jews, and the Apostle Paul was deeply concerned that his fellow people would come to know Jesus Christ. The second reason was that the people who gathered there, whether they be Jews, God-fearing Greeks, or Gentile proselytes, would have an understanding of the scriptures. And so Paul would reason concerning Jesus as the prophetic fulfillment to the promises 
of the Messiah. They were a step closer in understanding. Well, the result of Paul's ministry on several consecutive Sabbaths was that a number of the Jews, a large number of the Greeks who were God-fearing, who had been influenced by the monotheistic belief of the Jews, and a number of prominent women came to faith in Christ, and a second church was established. In the words of Luke, as he records what Paul was preaching and what Paul said, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Well, the trouble that Paul has experienced elsewhere has followed him. It's a little more sinister and a little darker as it takes a turn here in Thessalonica. The Jews are jealous at Paul's success with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they go out and they recruit a number of troublemakers to stir up agitation and social unrest against the Apostle Paul. The man that is hosting this new church, Jason, he's arrested and he finds himself in trouble and it's necessary for him to post bond to be released. Paul and his team find it necessary to abruptly leave Thessalonica. They travel on to the next town, which is Berea. And there Paul preached the gospel to the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And there the Apostle Paul established his third church in Europe. Well, the Jews in Thessalonica found out that Paul was in Berea. And so they came to Berea, and there they stirred up trouble for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had to leave quickly, and he was escorted to Athens by the men of the Berean church. Paul was there for some time. He had left Silas and Timothy back there in Berea, and he was waiting for them to join him there in Athens. Well, while he is here in Athens, he prayer walks the city. And his heart is deeply disturbed because of all the statues that proliferate Athens, honoring this god and that goddess. He even discovers one, in case any of them were missed, to the unknown god. And so the Apostle Paul engages in dialogue and debate with people who are gathered in the marketplace, especially two philosophical groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And then Paul has the opportunity to come before the Areopagus Council, a judicial ruling council, and there to proclaim the gospel to them. Now, this is one of the first times that we find the Apostle Paul proclaiming the gospel to a group of people who do not have any kind of monotheistic background. Their background involves many gods. And so the Apostle Paul begins what he is saying on that premise, I notice that you are very religious. It's a great study for us in proclaiming the gospel to people who have no religious background whatsoever. And he moved from there to talk about the true God, the one who was represented by their dedication and their shrine to the unknown God. 
And he proclaimed the Lord as the true God and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior. Well, there were a lot of skeptics and there were many who did not believe, but there were some who were intrigued. And there were also two notable conversions. A man who was part of that council and a woman who evidently held a prominent position as well. And so there were some new believers that were established there. We don't read of a church being established, but we know that there is now also a Christian community in Athens. Silas and Timothy joined the Apostle Paul. But because of their great concern for what was happening back in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul sent Timothy back to minister, to encourage, and to strengthen the spiritual well-being of this newly established church because they were experiencing the same persecution that the Apostle Paul experienced and that caused him to leave. Now, remember from our study last week, Timothy's a young man. Maybe he's still in his late teens. Perhaps he has turned 20. And yet, because of the upbringing of his mother and his grandmother, he knows the scripture so well his faith is so strong that the Apostle Paul can send him, just a college-age student, back to this newly established church, these infant Christians who don't know a lot about following Jesus Christ and who are experiencing persecution to abandon their faith. And yet the Apostle Paul knows that Timothy has what it takes, knowing the scriptures, and in his relationship with Jesus Christ to encourage and strengthen that church. Parents, let me ask you, are you truly discipling your children? Are you raising them to know the scriptures and to know them well? Would they have what it takes? Do they know the word of God enough? Are they walking with Jesus Christ in relationship in such a way that they could be used as Timothy was used. Your greatest responsibility is to disciple your children so that they carry out the will of God, so that they can do the work of the church in the next generation and carry on the mission. I urge you, don't let anything, any priority of this life supersede that priority of discipling your children in the word of Jesus Christ and preparing them to carry out the mission that God has given to the church. Well, from Athens, Paul traveled to Corinth. Now, Corinth is the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Greece is divided into two provinces, the northern province of Macedonia, the southern province of Achaia. Thessalonica is the capital of the northern province, and Corinth is the capital of the southern province. Corinth is a large and influential city. It hosts the Isthmus Games, the forerunner of the Olympic Games. It is also a very strategic business, banking, and commercial center. Much commercial travel goes right through Corinth. They have the means of transferring ships so that they do not have to travel all the way around the isthmus from one side to the other. 
They're able to charge a fee for the commerce that goes through. But it's also a very immoral city. It has a large shrine to Apollo and one to Aphrodite. And those temples have a thousand, what they call sacred prostitutes, male and female. And sexual activity is very much a part of their pagan worship. When Paul arrives there, he meets two fellow Jews who have come to know Jesus Christ, Aquila and Priscilla. Now Luke tells us that they've been forced to leave Rome because of the edict that Claudius had given that all Jews who were non-Roman citizens had to leave Rome. They are believers. Luke doesn't tell us how they came to be believers, but remember that on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews in Jerusalem who heard and experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and who heard the gospel proclaimed by Peter that day. We don't know if Aquila and Priscilla were among that number, or perhaps there were other Jews who heard the gospel among those who repented and were baptized and then who traveled back to Rome. At any rate, the Apostle Paul encounters two fellow believers in Jesus Christ who are also Jews. This must have brought such joy to the Apostle's heart. Well, they were tent makers like him. And so together, the three of them engaged in their craft for financial support. And the Apostle Paul continued to minister bivocationally, going into the Jewish synagogue and preaching the gospel. Silas, who evidently was waiting in Athens for Timothy to get back, soon joined with Timothy, the Apostle Paul. And they brought an offering from the churches in Macedonia. Those churches in Macedonia had bought all in to the mission that God had given the Apostle Paul. And the mission that the Apostle Paul had evidently told them was their responsibility too, that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Some will be senders and some will be goers. All of us fall into one of those two categories. There isn't a third category. They recognized that they were senders. And so they had collected an offering among themselves and they had given it to Timothy. Timothy had brought it back, joined Silas. The two of them had come from Athens. And because of that offering, the Apostle Paul was able to devote himself full time to the ministry and to the proclamation of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, the longest stay of anywhere until he would stay three years in Ephesus. And it was from Corinth that the Apostle Paul wrote his two letters to the church at Thessalonica. The first one coming just about six months after he had first come to Thessalonica and preached the gospel. Now let's take a moment and think about the letters of the Apostle Paul, because it's very important for us to understand some things as we read these passages of scripture. The Apostle Paul will begin his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle to the church at such and such. The apostle Paul authored 13 of 27 writings in the New Testament. Nine letters were written to churches and four were written to individuals. His first letter to the Thessalonian church was his second letter, but the first to a specific church. 
Galatians was written to a number of churches. It's called a circular letter because it was meant to be circulated among all the churches. His second letter to Timothy would be his last, written at the end of his ministry just before his death, when he would say, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And now there's a crown of righteousness waiting for me and for everyone who loves the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The typical format of Paul's letters follow, beginning with a greeting and then an affirmation of the faith, whether an individual or a church. And then he will spend time presenting teaching or doctrine concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the truth about God's plan of salvation and what it means for us. And then he will make application and end with some closing instructions. And every sentence of the letters of Paul is saturated with revelation of Jesus, an essential truth for Christ's followers. Understand this, you and I cannot know the heart of God, and we cannot know how to live as followers of Christ without studying and without internalizing the truth that is in the letters of Paul. In other words, you and I will fall short of what we need to know and how we need to live if we do not spend time studying the Word of God, the letters of the Apostle Paul to the church. Now, as we already saw with his letter to the Galatian churches, many of Paul's letters are occasioned by problems or false teaching that has influenced the churches. The result being that people are being led away from a sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul is contending for the gospel of Christ. He is contending against the work of Satan. He is contending against the work of people. And he is contending against efforts to undermine his ministry and to undermine the gospel that brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. If people do not know the gospel, they will not be saved. If they are not saved, they will experience God's wrath being poured out upon them. And so we find that some of Paul's letters are rather combative. He is contending for the gospel. Others are deeply personal and affectionate. Like his letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, and those to the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. And when the apostle Paul writes to, quote, the church at such and such. He is addressing a group of believers in a city who meet in a home, or if they are larger as a body, meet in several homes. They are an ecclesia, a called out group. And there are some distinct features about an ecclesia of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. They are distinct as God's holy and chosen people. Number two, they are called out of the world that is under God's judgment. Number three, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Number four, that they might represent the gospel of Christ in their locality as, number five, they live toward the return of Jesus Christ. Those factors, those truths, characterize all apostolic letters, whether they are written by the Apostle Paul, 
or Peter or John. And it enables us to understand, are we a true church? We are a true church if those five things characterize us. But any church that is not characterized by these five things is not the true church of Jesus Christ. They may have started out that way, but they've fallen away. It also helps us understand whether or not we are true and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and told them why he was sending this letter and why he had sent Timothy on an earlier visit. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. That is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. Do you sense the deep concern of the Apostle Paul for these believers at Thessalonica? This is the concern that every pastor, every evangelist, every missionary has. We don't want our work to be in vain. I don't want to see you fall away. I want to see you stand firm in your faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul wrote, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Amen. Now let's go back to the title of this study, Real Simple Discipleship. And think about this word, discipleship. What does it mean? Discipleship represents a master-apprentice relationship or a teacher-student relationship. 
It means that someone is apprenticing. They are watching a master. They are studying a master. They are learning from a master. A student is listening, taking notes, studying, learning from a teacher so that they also can master the material, master the craft. To be a disciple of Jesus is not merely to be a listener of his words, but to be with him. Just because you are here today and you are listening does not make you or me a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are a disciple when we are with him in this master-apprentice-student-teacher relationship. To be a disciple of Jesus means to submit to Jesus' discipline, to his way of life, and through obedience and imitation to resemble him in every aspect of life. And according to the New Testament, whether one becomes a disciple of Jesus will be of huge importance for every individual at the judgment. You see, it matters very much how you and I are listening to and following Jesus Christ. You know what the biggest obstacle is in following Jesus? You are. The biggest obstacle for me is me. It's not someone else. It's not something else. I am my own biggest obstacle in following Jesus, just as you are when it comes to you following Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see, something more needs to happen than just saying, I believe in Jesus, or I've been baptized, or just being here on Sunday and listening. Something more than your past needs to be taking place. You need to be following Jesus right now. And you and I need to be getting self out of the way. Someone said to me this week, in the context of discipleship in the Bible, there is only one thing that is said about self. Self is not exalted. Self is not emphasized. Self is not glorified. Self is not enhanced. There's only one term, and that is self-denial. Otherwise, self gets in the way and keeps us from following Jesus. Remember that Jesus prayed, yet not my will, but your will be done by me. He also said, as he concluded his Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what does discipleship mean? It means to follow the will of Jesus. What is the will of Jesus? To follow the Father. Jesus said, I watch what my father is doing and I do it. I speak the words that he tells me to speak. And just as Jesus followed the instructions of the father, if you and I are a disciple of Jesus, we will be following the instructions of Jesus. Just as Jesus lived to do the father's will, 
If you and I are true followers of Jesus Christ, then we will also live to do the will of God. Now, what does real simple discipleship mean? You know, discipleship can be made very complicated by a lot of people, but it's not complicated at all. And I want to share with you as we come to the end of this study today, just three things for real and simple following of Jesus, of watching him, of mastering what it means to live for Jesus, of building your life in him so that you are ready as a follower of Jesus Christ for his return. Real simple discipleship. Number one, live to please God. The apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. He would use that term in other ways throughout his letter. A life that is worthy of the Lord, he says earlier. But it comes down to this, living to please God. How do we know what pleases God? It's simple. We imitate the life of Jesus in living by the paradigm of God's will and not the paradigm of self or society. Again, we imitate the life of Jesus in living by the paradigm of God's will and not the paradigm of ourselves or the paradigm of society. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul said two things concerning the will of God. He said, first of all, that it is God's will that we live a sanctified or a holy and set apart life. That is God's will. And he contrasted it to the way that the heathen live in passionate lust. Society at Thessalonica was as Corinth. It was an immoral society, a sexualized society, a society where people lived any way that they wanted to and did whatever they wanted to. In other words, it's a society very much like what we see in the United States today. The Apostle Paul said, if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you don't live according to the desires of self and you don't live according to the way that society is living. It is God's will that you live a holy, set-apart life. You know, you and I have come to a place where in the church, pretty much anything goes the way that it does in the world. People live the way that they want to. They watch what they want to. They speak, and it sounds like the world. They engage in relationships that are different from the truth of God's word. You know, if a pastor talks about modesty, he will be criticized in these days for body shaming. If we talk about the relationships that God has ordained for marriage, we'll be condemned as haters and bigots, people who are unjust. And yet God is very clear what he expects of his people and how they should live. But we live in a sexualized society, a society that is saturated with an emphasis on glorifying self and a sexualized image. We see it on TikTok, the videos that are posted there, Instagram postings, yoga poses, video workouts, YouTube, 
On and on the list goes. Many Christians will sit down and watch movies that are sexualized and filled with profanity. Those things the Apostle Paul said should not characterize the people of God. God's people should live a sanctified, holy, and set-apart life. How we live should not resemble sinful self. The words that we speak, as he wrote to the Ephesians, should not be coarse. They should not be profane. They should not be vulgar. The things that we view should be the things that are holy and righteous and not the things of this world. It is God's will that we live a holy and sanctified life and not follow the way of self and the way of our society. The second thing that Paul said, emphasizing God's will, is found in chapter 5. He said, a life of worship is God's will. Or to be expressed in another way, a life of continuous spiritual, and I capitalize spirit, spiritual expression. What did he say? He said, be joyful always. Pray continually. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In other words, you and I should live a life that is led by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, a life that is conscious at all times of the presence of Jesus Christ, a life that is lived out in response to what happens to us with prayer and joy and thanksgiving. A life of worship. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and said, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove the perfect and acceptable will of God. In other words, you and I should live distinctly as a follower of Jesus Christ, a set-apart life, a spirit-enabled life, imitating Christ and not following the desires of self or living as those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. If we are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're not living the way that the world lives. We're not living the way that we want to live. We are following Jesus, and we are living the will of God. You and I need to pray this prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. We need to pray it over our lives. We need to pray it on a daily basis. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify me through and through. May my whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to be set apart for you. Secondly, real simple discipleship means that we live a more and more life. The Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 4 and verse 10, yet we urge you to do so more and more. Now, he was affirming their walk with Christ and the way that they loved one another with Christ-like love. And that love extended to the other believers in Macedonia as well, not just their own church family. But he said, yet we urge you to do so 
more and more. Being a disciple means more. Knowing more about Christ, being more like Christ, doing more for Christ. Here's why. When more does not characterize my life, it means that I've stopped following Jesus. As a carpenter, there's always something more to know. As a student, there's always something more to learn. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's always something more to become to be like Jesus and something more to do in order to carry out his work. When more does not characterize my life, it means that I've stopped following Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, fruitfulness, the more of our lives, means that we are following Jesus, that we are a true disciple. When we don't have fruit, it means that we're no longer following Jesus. And as we hear from the words of Jesus here, that's not a place where you and I want to be. Peter, in his second letter, laid out a list of characteristics that should be in the life of a disciple. That we add to our faith or to believing in Jesus. Knowledge and goodness and godliness, etc., after he made that list, he said, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. You see what he's saying? If we get to the place where there is not more in our lives, it means that we are not following Christ. It means that we've forgotten the work of salvation. It means that we are no longer living and walking with Christ. As Oral referenced in his announcements this morning, we have more opportunities than we ever have to come together. More times of prayer, and it's easier for us. We don't have to get dressed, get in our car, drive to a building, to be together with other believers. You have every reason to be on the evening prayer calls where we share the scripture together and then pray Monday through Friday. You have much more of an opportunity to be in Wednesday Bible study May it not be that you are letting these opportunities, these more, go by, but that you are making the most of them so that you are standing stronger than you have ever been before. And the third thing that the Apostle Paul emphasizes to the Thessalonians as real simple discipleship is live toward Christ's return. And in chapter 5 and verse 4, he said, But you are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. What day? The day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. 
the day when human history comes to an end. You see, if we are true followers of Christ, then we live with a total awareness of God's plans. How do we know God's plans? It's because we read and study the scriptures. Something momentous occurred this week. It's part of God's plans. It fits into the end time. It's part of what is taking place in order for the return of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord to take place. And that was the historic signing of a peace agreement between UAE, Bahrain, and Israel. That is a peace that points toward everything being in place for the coming of the Antichrist, for a one world, for the role that Israel will have in the midst of all this. And then the return of Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom on earth. What does the Apostle Paul tell these believers about God's plans? What total awareness do they need to have? Number one, Jesus is coming. And he emphasizes that over and over again. Jesus is coming back. Secondly, he also emphasizes that God's wrath is coming. The apostles never preached the gospel without emphasizing that God's wrath was coming and that the only place of protection for us was in Jesus because God's wrath is coming upon all those who do and live in an ungodly way. The third thing is that the day of the Lord is coming. That is the day when human history comes to an end when there will be no more of life as we know it here on earth. And God will bring human history to a stop, and Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom on the earth. Who will be with him when he does? The Apostle Paul uses the term holy ones in his letters. When Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. That will be you and I if we have been living toward the return of Jesus Christ. If we have been living with a total awareness of God's plans, if we have been living as true followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for those who are living for him and looking for his return. God's wrath is also coming, and he will pour out his wrath upon the nations of this world because they have not followed his ways. And the day of the Lord is coming when human history will come to an end. All will be judged and God's kingdom of perfect righteousness will be established upon this earth. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he had told them these things when he was there before. He said, you're not in darkness that this day should surprise you. You have the inside knowledge. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The writer to Hebrews said, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. When you read through this letter of the Apostle Paul 
And he talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. You also find that he says over and over, encourage one another in this. Encourage one another. Jesus is coming back. Remind one another. Jesus is coming back. Are you living with more? Or have you given up meeting together in the way that you used to? Are you following Jesus Christ more closely? Are you engaged with other believers more than you ever were before? If you realize that Jesus is coming soon and that the day is approaching, you will be doing these things. May that be true of you. May that be true of me. Now, I want to come back to something that the Apostle Paul said in the beginning of this letter to the Thessalonians. After he greeted them and affirmed them, he said this at the end of chapter 1. People everywhere are telling about the way you accepted us when we were with you. They tell how you stopped worshiping idols and began serving the living and true God. And you wait for God's Son, whom God raised from the dead, to come to heaven. He is Jesus, who saves us from God's angry judgment that is sure to come. Real Christians, real followers of Jesus Christ, live distinctly as a follower of Christ. People can see it, and they talk about you. That's what Paul said about the Thessalonians, and it's true for us too. If you are living, truly living for Jesus Christ, there's going to be a big difference between the way you live and the way that everyone else lives. The words you speak and the words that people around you are speaking. And if you are truly living distinctly as a follower of Jesus Christ, people are going to call you out. People will see it and they will talk about you. If you're a real Christian, it means that everything you do is to serve God and his purposes. And thirdly, it means that the return of Jesus is connected to everything you say and do. When you are talking to people, you're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. When you are working, engaged in your job, engaged in other projects, you are doing that because you see that it has value in light of eternity. Some believers, you never hear them talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And you wonder, do they really think Jesus is coming back? Or is it now so far from their thinking that it's meaningless to them? Well, on the other hand, make-believe Christians, these are those who say they believe in Jesus, but there's no evidence that they truly walk with Jesus, no evidence that they are a disciple. No one knows or can tell from how you live that you follow Jesus Christ. You like and you talk about the same things as non-Christians. It might be sports. It might be your YouTube channel. It might be something else. But people hear the same things coming from you as they hear coming from themselves. And thirdly, you're a make-believe Christian if you show no interest in Christ's return or any concern for God's coming judgment. It's not hard for us to follow Jesus. Oh, we will be persecuted and there will be pressures against us, but it's not complex. 
we keep our eyes on Jesus. We follow him as he followed the will of God for his life. We never stop wanting to become more like Jesus. And we live every day thinking, could this be the day that Jesus comes back? I want to be ready and looking for his return. Friends, I pray for you as the Apostle Paul prayed for the Thessalonian church that you will be real disciples of Jesus Christ and that you will be living toward his return. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for your truth. I pray that it would go deep into each of our hearts. May the words of the writer to Hebrews your word is sharp. It is like a two-edged sword. It goes as deep as bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Father, we pray that your word would go deep into us, that it would be transforming, that it would make us who you want us to be and who you've called us to be. And that, Lord, if any of us are not pressing in to Jesus with everything that is in us, if we are doing less, if we are forgetting, we pray that you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit today so that Jesus will truly be our consuming passion and our total focus. We thank you for one another. We bless one another and pray that each one would be strong in Jesus and continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.